AC Riley here, part of the Grapple Talk Network and host of the Riley Factor, but it's not about me right now. It's about a man that uh, we lost, you know, a man, a brother, a family member, a father. Uh, we lost Prodigy over the week. And honestly, this hit me a lot harder than I expected it to. I'm not saying that I was really distant with Prodigy. I'm not saying that, oh, why should I care about it? Because Prodigy was a, was a hell of a guy. He was a hell of a stand-up guy. I honestly cannot say I have a bad memory with him. I've known him since, I want to say, 2011. I think we first met at SWE, and as a result, you know, met him through Seminar W, and... Um, I swear, I've never seen somebody so enthusiastic about a steak buffet. And that's no joke. Man, I, I gotta say, they, North Country Steak Buffet in La Crosse, Wisconsin probably lost its favorite customer. Um, because Jim was there one day, and he was just blown away by... He hasn't... He wasn't aware of it before. Um, but yeah, I honestly can't say a bad thing about him. I thought he was a great guy to have in the locker room, great guy to, to talk to outside of the locker room. And I remember putting a show together in Lansing, Iowa, and he was one of those guys that really taught me about professionalism because I remember he was having some bickering with with, uh, with Lane and Vic, and he said regardless of what they were doing, he was going to stay professional and he was still going to be there. And that really spoke volumes to me because here he has this internal struggle. Um, you know, he had some personal issues with them at the moment. They were fighting about something. And he said, doesn't matter if you book me, we're not going to fight because we're here to put on a good show. And it spoke volumes. Um, definitely a, a big memory I have of him. I got to wrestle him uh, back in 2012, I want to say. It was a tag match. Uh, the famous Dickieville, Iowa incident where basically the match that was supposed to be, I think either before intermission or the third match of the card, suddenly became the semi-main event because somebody got lost in Iowa. Um, but, you know, good times, great times, uh, great memories with Prodigy. And it's really tough that we lost him. Um, listening to the Ross family talk about their memories with Prodigy, uh, listening to some of the old episodes, I got to say, it's been a really tough past couple of days because we lost a great friend. We lost a great member of our family. And before uh, before I start breaking down uh, trying to record this, I will say, you know, rest in peace, Prodigy. Rest in peace, Jim. Um, really sorry that we started off the, uh, the podcast on a sour note and you were the butt of the and Jim jokes. Um, literally just because I wrote the Ross family and prodigy because that's where that all started. Fun fact, if it, if anybody was curious, but yeah, we lost, we lost a great friend. We lost a great, uh, father, uh, family member. We lost a great person. Hi. Um, my name is Jake Okorowski. You'll hear the guys refer to me as Kuba on the podcast and, uh, first off, I just want to send my deepest sympathies and prayers. My family does. Laura and our three boys send our deepest prayers and sympathies to everyone that's affected by what's happened. And uh, we're thinking about Katie, their three daughters, family, Greg, uh, your family, 
uh, everyone, all the, the Ross family, everyone, um, just know we're thinking and praying for you guys. Um, this is a hard to do. Um, I felt like I would stumble, so I, I wrote this out. So apologies if this seems kind of scripted. Um, I remember first seeing Jim and, and meeting him in PWF in, in a backed-up lawn in South Milwaukee, some backyard lawn. And um, But after he broke his neck and, and something he loved, by the way, uh, me to do when I introduced him to my other friends is the guy who broke his neck. Uh, I remember you know, Josh, Josh Maxim and, and I visited him in the hospital and you know, after a while, our, our friendship grew in, in SSW. You know, after after one show, and this is how I think really our friendship really kicked off. Uh, I remember he and Lane took me back to Madison on a rainy night uh, because I wanted to see my then girlfriend at the time. Uh, you know, it was a night where his van's windshield wipers weren't working. So uh, Lane, you'll remember this. Uh, we stopped in Johnson's Creek because the rain was so bad that you know, he spread some of the oil on from his car, from his van, onto the windshield so he could see. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, I still laugh at that, just remembering. Uh, I think he also, I think he stayed longer in the dorm than I stayed awake that night uh, just meeting people, uh, which is just who you guys were and how Jim was in terms of meeting people. Um, I remember that that summer and, and fall, you know, even when I was back in Madison, our friendship grew more, especially during that summer. Um, I did training with chaos, the emergence of the aviator mafia, uh, driving up to some 18 and over dance club an hour away. Uh, the times we, you know, we all just chilled at my parents' place, uh, in Greenfield and watched wrestling. We discussed life. We, uh, you know, went to various restaurants, very cheap restaurants. When my parents wouldn't drive me back to Madison for the start of my junior year of college, Jim and my sister did. You know, when I was at my worst after a college breakup, you know, he he reminded me to be better. Uh, I'll always remember uh, he and Lane trying to do the worm at my wedding, at Laura and I's wedding, the time Laura and I were introduced to and held his oldest daughter when we visited an Oconomowoc, uh, the jokes we, we've had at Fusion Pro Wrestling during my last run as a wrestler and, and remember him uh, when Scotty and I first started the Kilbasa King Sports Extravaganza, him calling in back in its infant stages and talking. Um, I, how do I say goodbye to someone I barely said hello to in a while? You know, we grew up, we had kids, lost touch outside of a Facebook message here and there or an event invite. I, you know, I'll miss you. I'll miss your various Favre jerseys. I'll miss your very your quick wit, your you know your humor, and I just want to say, you know, rest easy, brother. I'm praying for you, and your family, your friends, and your three daughters. Um, we'll miss you, man. Family Matters Podcast.
um, kicks off this week. Un unfortunate uh, news, but we're going to celebrate the life of our one of our family members, uh, Jim. And, you know, we're kind of at a loss for words as we put this together. I'm uh, Scott Williams, Vic the Stick, Jason Masters joins us. Of course, uh, Jack Spade and Monica, we've got some special guests. And, you know, I'm going to kind of defer a lot of this over uh, to you, Lane, and we're going to try to get through this. We don't have a, like, rigid time frame this time around. It could be short. It could be a little longer. But um, I think it's just a good way for us to remember one of our best friends and, you know, maybe unburden some of the thoughts that have been going through our heads the last 27, 28 hours. All right. Um, so I met Jim in 2004, so our story for us is going to open when I was 18 or 19 and he would have been 21 and 22. Um, so at that point, I was already training and, and working with SSW and Jim before I met Jim I was aware of who Jim was um, Ryan and Dan really uh, I want to it was like a little bit of reverence for Jim because Jim could do a lot of cool stuff compared to a lot of the talent that they had at that point in time um, and he was uh, he, he had like a an entrance that was all his own. He had a style that was all his own. Um, and obviously he was one of their close friends going all the way back to high school. But he was also a cautionary tale because by that point, um, <clears throat> Jim had already broken his neck, which had damaged his reputation and honestly SSW's reputation with the... Uh, the legitimate quote-unquote companies in the area uh for you guys did you guys hear about that when it happened were you guys aware of that situation i had heard about it but i didn't know details like who it had happened to um you know because obviously in this wrestling business it's you know spread out yet tight-knit like there's enough chatter so we had heard that somebody hurt themselves, but I was unaware of who who it was, to be quite honest. And I was not aware. I, I didn't know about it until years later when I got to know Jim. Okay. I so, also was not aware yeah, until <laughs> years later. You just yeah. found out right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jim, uh, as far as I'm aware, and a lot of this might be out of order and a lot of this might be wrong for timing. I'm just, I wrote this today and it was just my best memory. Um, from what I understand, he actually injured his neck when he was training with SSW. He had been working on moonsaults, I think, or something, trying to practice them and get them down, and he landed on his head. Like, he slipped and landed on his head, and he felt weird, but he didn't react to it. He didn't do anything wrong. He later worked a PWF show, um, and he did a, a swanton bomb, uh, basically. He landed perfectly flat back, but the impact of landing flat backed actually snapped 
his neck that, that was already that was already damaged, um, and it twisted, so his neck twisted in opposite directions. So one half was one way, and one half was the other way. Um, as far as I'm aware from what he told me as well, so again, the more established companies, they made the story a lot more outlandish every time it got told. There were different details of things, you know, he was on he, two ladders, he was jumping from a roof, um, right. and he was a yarder, and that's why he broke his neck. Um, he said in the hospital the only way that they could get his neck back into place was to put him basically into traction where he had a halo uh, and they gradually attached weights to the halo until his neck would straighten and turn itself. You know, it's amazing that if you think about it how it could have been a millimeter could have been we he never walked. I mean, so he dodged a bullet. It, it was able to survive that. Cause that's that doesn't sound sound scary. So, um, I and I've talked about it before, and we talked about it a little bit a uh, bit here. I had moved back to the Milwaukee area. I had lived for high school in Illinois, and my family had had um, our home basically um, foreclosed on my parents' car. Our family car was repossessed. Um, my parents, my younger brother, and myself had all moved into my grandparents' basement at that time. Um, and I found SSW through searching online for wrestling in South Milwaukee. And at that point, 2003, 2004, the internet was not... It was a presence, but it wasn't a huge presence. A lot of sites didn't have up-and-running websites, but SSW did. Um, by the beginning of 2004, SSW was really trying to break away from their backyard image, and they split with the PWF backyard company that was running at that yard at 5th and Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Um, and it was a really, uh, bitter feeling between the two companies at the time. Uh, Jim, his very close friend, Matt Nyes, was a PWF loyalist, and he had been using the internet to basically call out people, threaten people, that sort of thing. Uh, they also showed up at an SSW anniversary show uh, and interrupted one of the matches. Um, it was a food drive show, and they pushed over the donation barrel. Pushed over the donation barrel on the way out. Um, somewhere in there, I posted a very long message about how I was sick of the online chatter and I was sick of everything. I talked about my past and why I got into wrestling and what I wanted to do. Um, and I basically ended <clears throat> that post by giving out my legit address at the time um, and my phone number. And I said, if anybody wants to talk or anybody wants to fight, this is where I live. Come and find me. Um, 
Jim uh, was the only person to take me up on that. Uh, he showed up at my house. Um, at this point, Dan and Ryan and PWF, nobody wanted him to get back in the ring. Um, so since nobody wanted him to wrestle, he started to train with Bruce City uh, with Matt Nyes. Um, this was a long time. This There was no Thumper's Den. Right. It was a lot different process. This was Adrian Serrano doing the cardio every time. And I went to one with Ryan at the time. And the purpose was to make you quit or throw up or preferably both if they could get you to do that. Um, but he didn't care. He was training. If anybody there didn't want him to wrestle, they didn't. Um, and if anybody there was worried about his neck, they didn't show it. Um, either way, he showed up at my house. Uh, he was already depressed at that point because of his neck. Um, he also had gone through a very tough breakup with his girlfriend from high school. Um, but me and him became close quickly. Uh, Jim was four years older than me. We had the same birthday in June. Um, at that point, we were basically pretty much fuck-ups. We didn't have purpose in lives. We didn't have good jobs. We had a lot of time to mess around. Um, we spent a lot of time generally just fucking around, hanging out with a lot of friends at colleges. Um, we would hang out Carroll College with our friends. We'd go out to Madison hang out with Cuba and his group of friends. We were always around colleges, but we were never in college. Um, so, just to go back to that SSW anniversary show, that was the first time as well that I recall seeing anybody, like, that's the first time I recall meeting Brian. I believe Brian and you were in the crowd for that. I was with Brian that night, yes. Scott, I don't know if you were there. I don't, I don't believe, believe so. I was. Um, so Brian at that point wanted to be known as a trainer. He wanted his legacy to be as a trainer. Um, and I honestly, I think you could probably ask him, but I think if you watch those SSW shows, he could probably see a lot of similarities to how you guys started Rebels and what SSW was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Would you? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean... You know, real quick, is I think SSW came, there's the spirit of their way they started was even though they didn't have the training that they wanted at the time, they wanted to be legitimate. And that's really the same place we came from. So I think, yeah, that's the biggest similarity right there. Yeah. So, um, that summer of 2004, we were working shows, we were traveling to camps he was doing camps for bruce city we were traveling together and doing camps for acw in green bay uh with shane hills and um steve stone guys like that um and then we were training with brian at the rebels ring which was outside of a i want to say it was a metalworking factory in mcguanago muskego um brian's ring was outside 
it had a vinyl canvas. It was in the sun. It was the middle of summer. And it was the stiffest ring in the world. Mm-hmm. How did you guys got that ring from Al Patterson? Al Patterson sold it to us. He had bought it from Vern Gagne. And the boards even said Minneapolis Wrestling Club on it. So it was it was sturdy. It was legit. It was very unforgiving. Yeah, you had to have the spring absolutely like centered or else it didn't even Yeah. And you could lock it too, right? Oh yeah. If you want to make it a boxing ring. <clears throat> I wanna say by the time of the next anniversary show, so this is probably around 2005, or maybe 2004, I'm not, probably 2005, Dan and Ryan realized they weren't going to be able to stop Jim from wrestling, and they were worried for his safety at Bruce City. There were concerns, I know Jim had concerns about them trying to re-break his neck, um, and I know he didn't show up for a show he was supposed to work, and Matt Nyes was beaten in the ring as rookies get at that point in time. Um, But with Jim being able to work for SSW, that allowed us to work with him, work against him. Uh, We got to travel to shows. Jim... uh, fancied himself to be quite the mechanic. So Jim had a had a thing where if you buy a car, no matter how much you spend on a car, you should get a month for every $100 you spend. So Jim was not unwilling to spend $500 on a car and assume he was only going to get five months and try to keep that thing going forever. So there was a lot of times where we almost died. Um, because we couldn't, we were going, like, Dan started to go out and work in that place that Powerhouse was running. Do you, Allenton? Allenton, yeah. So there was, a like, a crazy, crazy ice storm at one point, and I had, Jim had talked me into buying a 1985 Ford LTD that you had to, like, prime and rear-wheel drive, and... There was an ice storm, and we drove all the way out to Allenton, and then as soon as all the workers were there, Dan canceled the show. But on the way to Allenton, we spun. We spun out. Like, it was just insane. Um, but if I look back, that was a really important time in my life. We were always broke. We were always in trouble. Um, but... I had a lot of fun. <clears throat> so somewhere around this point, as well, SSW was starting to wind down, and I think Dan and Ryan were getting sick of running shows at that point, the first time. Um, we had become more acquainted with you at this point, and you got us a job working for uh, overnight security for fairs, festivals, and concerts for $6.80 an hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, a hell of a step up in the world for you. Um, how did we get to that point? 
Because I, I don't know. What was your first impression of Jim? When did you meet Jim? I stayed overnight with you guys watching the ring at Oak Creek. Um, there was a show the following day in the afternoon, but you guys set up early. And it was around the time that you had your beef with the PWF because you guys were concerned that they were going to come and trash the setup. So you guys were staying overnight, and I volunteered to do the same. And we just shot the shit all night. And I could tell you were both stand-up dudes. And then from there, we just sort of started hanging out together. So is it a thing where you're like, hey, you guys are crazy enough to stay up all night? How much you get paid to do it? Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure they said, you know, you know anybody that's hiring? And I, I sure did. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody that was paying anything, but I knew somebody <laughs> that was hiring. That's one thing they were always what they were always hiring. Right, because they didn't pay dick. Never. It was pretty much the perfect job. You could choose your own hours. You could still tell your parents you had a job. You could still tell people you knew that you had a job. Um, at this point, I'm pretty sure that me and him had walked out of so many warehouse jobs or shitty other jobs that we were having a hard time finding <clears throat> legitimate work anywhere. Sure. So you could say, yeah, I work for this place. I'm not going to say their name. I don't know if I should or not. You can say it. But, okay. Well, RTM. So you could say I have a job working RTM. I do event staff. I have a job. And then all of a sudden people are willing to possibly hire you again. Um, or we could just continue to fuck around. Which, which it happened for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Um, Somewhere at the point where we were doing this, SSW's winding down. Um, we're not really working much of anywhere else. We're not really traveling up to ACW anymore. Um, he's not working with Bruce City anymore. That's when he would meet Katie, his future wife, who went to school in Stevens Point. So, uh, after the Rebel show at Tanner Paul... The last Rebel show other than the reunion. Mm -hmm. um, we left, or we drove up. He wanted to be with her. So I took him from that show. We drove to Stevens Point. I was just going to drop him off and give him a car, so he had a car to get around to apply for jobs for a week. And we ended up um, living together in a house on or near campus, it was Jim, myself, Katie, and four other college students in one house. Okay. Sounds like a bad reality show. <laughs> yeah. You just put, put two ne'er-do-wells who have no motivation in a house with four people who are going to try to improve their future and see what happens. Um, in the time of living in that house, we formed our own company. Because <clears throat> um, we had nowhere else to work. And that's where the first Fusion Pro Wrestling show <clears throat> came out. And we ran our first show at Stevens Point in 2006. Do you guys have any memories of that show? Uh, I was on it as talent 
you and, I, and I'd, I'd like to point out that that proves I was not the owner of Fusion Pro Wrestling while I have that opportunity. We'll get there. Uh, Scott, were you on that? Do you I, remember? I don't think I was. It was at Skip's Bowl. Yeah, it was not. Stevens Point. I was not on that first show. That also may be the first point in time where you managed me. That very well may, yeah. Um, so at this point in time, after that semester ends, this the title of the show is At This Point in Time. Um, I chose to stay in Stevens Point with my own girlfriend. Jim and Katie would move back and forth from Milwaukee and Stevens Point while Katie finished her school. Um, my relationship at that point in time was not very solid. Uh, and Oh no, she was solid. She was real solid. Relationship was just bad. But when things would happen, Jim and Katie took care of me. And the first time that relationship went bad, Jim wouldn't let me leave their house for, I would say, probably four days. And he wouldn't let me go anywhere to be alone with my own thoughts. Um, they also had Jordan, their oldest daughter, around this point in time, um, which is where Jim finally got something to give him, in my opinion. Purpose in life was to be a family man and to be a father. Uh, around 2007 and 2008, we decided we wanted to continue to work shows, but we wanted to have fun and do things that would never, we would never consider during our run um, with legitimate companies. We wanted to get back to the point that we had freedom in SSW before we got trained. We dragged you out of your uh, your mini retirement. Yep. And we formed the two-man boy band with Vic the Stick Ross as manager and we started working for shows uh, for REWF shows. We were the only workers that had legitimate training on those shows. Um, you guys want to give any backstory towards REWF? Go ahead Masters, you were there first. So I was there during, I think it's always been in a constant decline. But, uh, yeah, did it, did it have a peak? Yeah, at, <laughs> at, 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 at its highest of decline. Uh, when I got there, there was workers there like T.C. Washington, Eddie Brown, Chris Black, uh, Days the Kettle Nightmare, uh, Nick Phoenix. A lot of dudes that we, that, that has grown so much and so far in their careers now you know and uh the owner of that company jeff briggs you know like he was he was a smooth talking mother trucker man like he would he could he could sell water to the beach man like that dude but he couldn't sell red bull to us and or wrestling or, or to wrestling fans. to fans yeah and and uh I had, I had, I was doing my time. I was doing my, I was doing my REWF time. 
and uh, I remember one day he comes to me and he's like, man, I got these two white dudes. I got these two white dudes and they're called the Two Man Boy Band and they're probably the best thing that you know, this company has have, and you know, I was working kind of like a babyface at that. I was working babyface at that time. You were definitely a babyface at that time. And uh, he's like, "I'm gonna put you in a program with these two dudes and or these two dudes." And at the time, he had me semi partnering with a larger fellow, uh, Mike Lucas. Um, That's not his name. His name is Mike Lucas. That's not his name. Okay, his name is Mike Lucas, but they called him Mike Masters. All right, and uh, he he was a po in like storyline for storyline purposes. He was supposed to be my giant little brother. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Can we just sidebar for a minute? Yeah, sure. Who had the name first? Me. Can I just point out that I saw that movie once? It had Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito in it. <laughs> uh, but his, his 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 ultimate goal was to have us uh, have like a tag team feud with you guys. And um, fortunately for me, unfortunate for you guys, I eighty six that joint and uh, end up going with another rebel like fed in mcw sure i you know there is a, a hidden point here though like so there's no doubt that jeff briggs had no goddamn business running a wrestling federation mm -hmm. but that's where there's it's not a black and white world because you just mentioned tc washington yep. you mentioned chris black yep. xavier mustafa yep. Jack Spade, yep. you. Yep. Right. So my point is, if you're a promoter and you think, okay, that, that company's not legit because it's being run poorly, the point is there's always gold that you can mine from these things instead of just burning it to the ground. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, as I said, MCW started, and MCW, you, you know, there was me. There was uh, TC. Right. There was Xavier Mustafa. There was Chris Black. There was Troy Walt. Walters. Walters, he what he was at the time, right. who ended up becoming kind of a big deal. Uh, Jason Parks, JP, the Gyps, you know, who for a while was a really good friend of mine. Like, uh, so, so, but so with REWF though, that's where so you were able to get some of that freedom, you and yeah, and Prodigy, and well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring some of this freedom up, and I want Vic to talk about him a little bit so yeah we were the only people who had legitimate training there other than briggs depending on you were you weren't there at that time we didn't see you yeah briggs 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 went to the power plant so anyway yeah, um, didn't. so maybe the bar frank's power, power plant. plant tell me about the percolator uh, i i hated the percolator the percolator is a song I love with, that song. <laughs> with the dance from the early to mid nineties. Yep. Early. And it went It's time for the percolator. It's time for the percolator. One more time. It's time for the percolator. It's time for the percolator. 
It's time for the percolator. All right. It's so, time for the percolator. It's time for the percolator. All right, take it home. That's not taking it home. Uh, at one point in a tag match, it was in fact announced that it was time for the percolator. At which point, Jim and Lane decided to dance the percolator. Which, if you're not familiar, looks quite a bit like a sprinkler head going around in succession. Okay. What about the, uh, what about the sand manager? The sand manager was a stupid gimmick that I came up with where I would just do a impression of the Sandman. So, like, for example, it would be like, yo, and things of that ilk. But I'm not going to do more of it because it hurts my throat to no end to do it. What did we do when they made us work each other as opponents? Uh, you guys locked up. And it has absolutely set a world record for the longest lockup in the world because you took it to the mat, nope. out to the floor. Nope. Can you shut up? Took it out to the floor, held it, took it all the way around the ring, went up the stairs, back through the ropes, in the lockup. It lasted like four minutes. It was absurd. Me and Lane hold that record now. Zabisco would have been proud. It was a good stall. And I think it ended in a... We, we broke the lockup and then relocked up. Uh, the Invisible Microphone. The Invisible Microphone is a stolen bit. <laughs> Plain and simple, it's a stolen bit. But we showed up and he had no audio system, no music, no microphone, nothing. But he still wanted promo. But still wanted to do an in-ring promo. Surprise, surprise. And it was so absurd that I just lifted my hand up to my mouth and pretended I had a microphone. And I spoke into my hand the entire time. And when I finished my part, I said to Jeff Briggs, what do you got to say about that? And I extended my hand to him. And he took the invisible microphone, at which point I said to him, what the hell are you doing? It's just a hand. Good thing you didn't slam the mic down. The DJ would have been mad. Oh, yeah. Yikes. How about, uh, how about, uh, Jim and Lorenzo? Okay, um, so Lorenzo was a guy who had him and I know you can't see my air quotes right now, but had impressed the other members of the REWF locker room by being able to successfully complete a flip bump on his first attempt. Uh, you'd have thought he won the Super Bowl right in front of you from the celebration. So he was deemed fit to work the Battle Royal that night. Oh, jeez. Only no one smartened him up. So when Jim was eliminated, there were about five to six people still in the ring. And I could see that Lorenzo was trying his hardest to eliminate Lane. So I went over and I picked Jim off the floor and I said, Dude thinks it's real. Get him out. And Jim 
scurried right into the ring, snatched Lorenzo, announced that it was time to go. And to his credit, Lorenzo took the lead and he went. But we had a close call for a second there. Uh, and yeah, we would end up meeting Jason Masters because of REWF. We never worked in REWF. Thanks, Jeff. But because of representing REWF at like that future superstars of wrestling yep. place that Jose Joey Samoa was running, yep. we met you at that show. And TC, who we knew from SSW, recruited us from REWF to come and work for MCW uh, with him. Xavier Mustafa, Chris Black, others. Um, Eddie, TC, and James uh, were trained. They were being trained by Angel Armani. We didn't know this. We didn't figure this out until, like, a lot later. A lot later that in the morning when we, on, on days, they would be in Muskego at the ring with Armani. Right. From, like, 8 to 10. Right. He used like our ring. He was also training Jack Berserker there. Yep. Eight to one. The camera hours are still the same right now to this day. But he would he would be there for that, and then he would leave, and then Brian, and myself, Jim, Kuba, and a rotating cast of people would slide in and, and be there afterwards. Um, and that connection to Armani from those guys and the previous connection you guys had with Armani from um, Rebels is what helped us get into MIAW. Um, and here's where things are going to start to diverge a little bit because between the camps with Armani is where I feel like I started to really understand how matches are supposed to be laid out and how things are supposed to go. I think we were there. But Jim was smart enough to get it and he understood it but at this point Jim had already decided it was not as important to him to be a legitimate like he didn't have that need to right. be known as a wrestler and be respected as a wrestler he wrestled from that point because he wanted to have fun he wanted to be with his friends he wanted to be with us um <clears throat> So, because Jim didn't have fun there, and Jim didn't like the way that Armani trains and coaches, he chose, at that point, that it was kind of a mutual decision that they weren't going to work with each other anymore. Um, from then on, Jim would split his time working heel as the two-man boy band uh, with myself and Vic in Seven Rivers and Masters. Um, and he would also work as a babyface... Um, as part of New South with SSP um, in SWE with Monica uh, in Fusion which was a running shows again at this point in Cudahy and Stevens Point and it was now a three man operation um, because it was myself, Jim and Vic running those shows um, not the owner as a worker how would you guys rate Jim? I don't think anybody's ever going to tell you that Jim was the best, but Jim was more 
than capable in the ring. Um, he couldn't cut a promo if you wrote it down and handed him scissors. Yep. But he was going to give you some excitement in the ring. And he was always good for the kids because him and Matt would come out and they would always throw their hats out to the crowd. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. We had, a, me and Jim had a match at one Stevens Point show. Well, maybe I was here. I don't really remember. I don't remember times and dates. I'm sorry. Or yes, or venues. Yeah, or venues. Um, where it was like in the beginning of our friendship, and I, I was not yet very used to Jim's form of flattery, nor was he used to mine. So people, mo everybody thought that there was heat between us. You have heat? Nah. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but we had this match. And we went out there and we just, like, legitimately beat each other up. You know, and I think it was like a, it was like a, a respect gaining thing in this match. We gained each other's respect. You know, and it and, and it, it happened. And as far as being a worker, my rating on him being a worker, like I would give him a solid seven, and it would be higher because he could do all the cool shit. He could do all the flippity doos and the the hoo has and all that shit. But Jim's issue wasn't. His in-ring ability, it was remembering things, and so Jim would Jim would you know we would go we would get you know three or four or five steps into the match and then Jim would be looking and going. So what are we doing now? So if you didn't, and which also taught me how to become a worker because if I didn't. If you don't know, if you if you're not a worker, you can't work with Jim because Jim would forget your spots and. I think Jim is a worker. Some of that, you know, you know, the the minutia of, the, you know, minutia. theory and and remembering stuff is because he really, like you mentioned before, Lane, wanted to do this more for fun and not for the structure of what wrestling was. I look at him two different ways as a promoter. I hated him. Because as a promoter, the few times I used him, he didn't seem to ever want to take direction. Okay. As a contemporary and working on the same show, I thought he was way better than I remembered him as a promoter. Okay, and you know, my my feeling about him changed when I wasn't in the you're messing up my show, dude. As you know, and I got to see him you know, do stuff, and again, the whatever he was doing, whether it was a heel or a babyface, he had the crowd exactly where they should have been, you know, so that was, again, a, a testament to him, B because, you know, we could talk about, you know, what is a five-star, you know, worker nowadays, and really all that matters is at the end of the show, I don't really care what you can do, what you can't do, if at the end of the show the fans remembered you 
and you did, you played the part, you played the character that you were supposed to play, and they remembered it and they bought it, to me, that's 90% of the battle. So I had no problem with him as a worker then. But yeah, early on, it was frustrating, man. He <laughs> was frustrating. I just want to add that Jim had a match with Tiny in Rubicon. Oh, yeah. That legitimately had the most genuine pop I've ever seen in yep. wrestling. Yep. yep. There were adults jumping up and down yep. when Jim pulled that upset off. Yep. So, yeah. I'm going to echo a lot of similar statements. Jim, as a worker, Jim was a couple, he, he was clumsy, and he admitted that as much on some of our earlier shows. Um, and his memory was bad, and he couldn't remember spots. But, uh, he was, he was like crazy, stupid, brave when it came to wrestling. Jesus. So he he ended up like so just five or six years prior, if that, people were saying that he broke his neck by jumping off of buildings and doing crazy stuff. And as Jim's career progressed, he jumped off of buildings like he did at the Fusion. Just, just to say, fuck you shows. guys. He uh, he jumped from a twenty foot landing and tried to put Masters through a table yep. and missed and severely injured his back. Um, yeah, yeah. And can we talk about that for a second? And he got up and he finished that match. Um, what do you want to talk about? We all love Jim. Um. But when the spot was discussed, I think everybody that's here right now outside of Monica asked this dude not to do it because he wouldn't be able to gauge it. And he was so gung-ho about this spot. I remember, I remember this shit like just because of things that's happening at the moment. I remember this shit like it was yesterday now, and it's weird, because I do. But, um, because we was getting ready for the spot, and I'm like, dude, just be safe. And he's like, I got it. And I'm like, dude, make sure you hit me. And he's like, I got it. And then he goes up, and I'm laying there, and I'm watching now, because at this point, he's my friend, and we're kind of close. But I'm watching him go up, and then he goes up and he, he pops the crowd real big and the crowd reacts. And then he, he dives. He dives. And halfway through the dive, I'm like, this dude is not going to get me. And then he barely grazed, you. grazed me. I And I'm like, trying to catch him so he doesn't break his ass bone from this 20-foot jump that he just made. And as much credit to him, man, like, like he, he missed the spot. He landed, the, he hit the floor. The table barely broke. Matt and I had to put me through the table with a power, a power bomb. But, he, you know, he, he finished. Matt, respect to my boy. He, uh, so, I'm going to contradict you a little bit here. 
because I remember him being terrified of him. And we were staging that spot before the show. We were. He was up on the landing. He was. And he, he was kept insisting. But he he wanted to do it. But we were setting the table up, and the whole time he went a little closer, a little close, because we were going to mark the floor yeah. where the table needed to be. A little closer, a little closer, and we kept going. You're going to jump out and, yeah. further than you're going to, you know, do right. that. But he was so scared of the possibility um, that he just kept bringing the table closer. Uh, but that really was like his goal was to get that pop from the crowd. And he his did. goal, um, and to be honest with you, his goal was to make everybody happy, and especially yeah. his his wife preferred him as a face because she liked to see him do the cool stuff that we always told him not to do. Yeah. When we had him play heel with us. Um. <clears throat> Jim, at this point in his life, and going forward, um, from his neck, would have a recurring, um, it was a painkiller issue that he developed when he was recovering from his broken neck that would flare up. And the injuries from doing these things did not help. Right. Um, yeah. He was an addict in recovery for a lot of that time. Mm -hmm. But when there would be when there would be relapses, they would be pretty heavy. Pretty heavy relapses. Uh, and he had a very, very high pill tolerance. Um, Jim would wind up his career not long after that. Um, when was the last time he wrestled, do you guys think? 12, 13? The last match was against that, that, that match he had with Starlin. No. No, he wasn't in that match. He was pulled into the ring, and that wasn't his last match. He worked the next day. He worked the next day against, against, the, against the midget. midget. Against, against the, midget. the midget. That was his actual last match. That boy, Brian. But I think that... Yes. I think that... I think that the night where he was pulled in the ring by stardom was definitely uh, the solidification of... Yeah, he's, he you know, said it was the beginning like, of the... Like that Jack's That, that, that started it. You know, and no no disrespect to, to, to Steve Stardom, you know, but uh, that was a bump he shouldn't have taken. And I feel awful because I was right there and I just couldn't get in the ring fast enough to take the bump myself. Well, and with respect to Steve Stardom, Jim should have known to pull himself out of that situation and get himself out of the ring. But again, so, Jim was the guy who, you know, he wanted he wanted to make sure everybody went home safe. Or went home happy, rather. And I didn't... I. I look at that now, and I look at it, and I go, that should have been me. You know, because maybe we would have gotten a year or two years or three years more of road time with Jim. But we didn't. Whatever. His, uh, but that was that was scary. I actually have a picture of 
it of them mid move and like me halfway in the ring trying to you know get right. in there. I just so he wrestled less and less. His highest profile match was probably working in front of about sixty people in Toma for Clint and working uh, against Perry Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, and he obviously worked in front of more people, but that's that's the highlight. The one that like he the name that the was name. the big name. Yeah. That was his crowning. Yeah, his jewel. In the <clears throat> feather in a cap. Are we going to talk about that or not? Um, no. Not necessarily. No. So Jim uh, devoted his life pretty much to his kids, his wife, being the best provider possible. Uh, he had his um, youngest daughter, Carson, was born in about 2013. Um, his home um, that he worked so hard to buy and built himself up really became the place where we would hang out as the Ross family when we weren't on the road traveling. Um, a lot of summer cookouts, a lot of fires uh, in the backyard, a lot of Jim setting himself on fire on accident. Um, a lot of hot sauce. A lot of hot various foods. Um, that Jim was really into, but Jim's house was very, very important, and the only reason it was Jim's house that was the most important one is because Jim had a terrible cat allergy and couldn't go literally to anybody else's house. Because we all had cats. Because the Ross family are cat people. Um, Yeah. So we all went to Jim's house. We all became... Um, friends with Jim, his wife. We all know his kids. Um, his parents, his brother. Yeah. yeah. People he worked with. Yeah. Um, he established his career um, in banking and, and worked really, really hard to be a provider and a, and a good husband and a good father. Um, but it was ultimately not a very healthy place for him. Um, Last week on Monday the 6th, um, Jim attempted to take his life multiple times throughout the course of the night. Uh, First through overdose of pills. Um, Then through attempting to hang himself um, only to be stopped by members of his friends and family. Uh, He was taken to a mental health facility but he had checked himself out within hours. Um, Throughout the course of the week between the 6th and the 13th uh, he had been under constant watch from his parents, from his wife, from members of the Ross family. He had not been left alone in that time. Uh, On Monday, November 13th, 
Jim took his own life. Um, he was 36 years old. So that would explain why we had um, a hard time giving you guys any sort of content over the course of the last week. Uh, we were trying to keep our friend alive and make sure he was happy and healthy and ultimately we didn't do a very good job um, of that. For me, uh, talking about Jim, he was not the life of the party, uh, but Jim had a really, really crazy ability to be able to walk around to anyone at that party and create a very uh, close connection with people in a very quick period of time. Uh, he was a very loyal friend. He was a good example of a husband. He was a good father. Uh, he was literally the kind of person that would pull over to the side of the road and help strangers if they were broke down on the side of the road. Uh, just recently when I tore my knee out at a show, Jim came and took me from my house the next day while my wife was up north with the kids and I was left alone and brought me to his family's home and took care of me. Uh, he, he was a brother to those of us in the Ross family. Yeah, I um, I agree with all of that. I, I want to just add to part of it and then kind of go back to me and my relationship with Jim. Um, is, you know, you talked about, you know, what happened on the 6th and that was spurred by fear he had of losing his family. It was, you know, he loved his girls and it was the most important thing in his life and it clearly showed, but... My relationship was a little different. It wasn't as long as obviously Lane and, and Vic. I knew him as long as as Vic did. But um, the life lesson I take from from him is a lot of times the people who seem the most guarded when you first meet them actually end up being the most genuinely warm, caring people, right? So the first few interactions the first couple years of of Jim I don't know that he cared for me too much and we didn't really have a chance to get to know each other so you know he put up the walls and we've talked about it on these shows why and it made sense and he was right to do those things and then when you start to like get to know him it's like well oh, this is really the most genuine dude you could ever meet you've met like he'd help you up through anything I mean out of the blue you know just out of the blue he Saw a post, you know, four or five years ago about needing breaks done. He's like, I'll come over and do breaks for you. You know, we weren't even, we were just starting to, like, get closer. And I'm like, you, who would do that for somebody? But he would. And he wouldn't let me pay him for it. Um, so, I, you know, so the, the moral of that story is you really need to get to know people sometimes to know what, you know, who they truly are. But 
I, I can't think of a time where we got to hang out, when we got to, you know, do anything at his house or any of the, you know, the wing, the, the hot wing cook-off at, at, on the Super Bowl where we pretty much destroyed the whole bar. I can't think of a time hanging out with him that wasn't fun. That wasn't, that didn't bring good memories. So I can speak from, again, lesser experience of hanging out with him, but I, I don't, there's nothing that comes up that's bad or that I, I wish I wouldn't have done that, you know, or, I mean, I actually wish I could have done it more, you know, and work schedules and life schedules and things of that nature. And the sad part is, for me, you know, the slightly selfish part of it all is, you know, the fact that I didn't have a chance to have because we had really good conversations, be it about sports or social political things or whatever. Um, the saddest part for me is that we didn't have a chance to ever have another conversation. The last time I actually had words with him, he was basically going through his, his stuff last Monday and asking us to get out of his house. You know, so I feel like there's there's there will never be, there's not a closure where I got to say, you know, Anything that I felt, I, I mean, I really never had it. And I think, you know, we don't maybe don't say it enough to each other because, you know. But I never got to tell him how much I appreciate him and how much, you know, deeply cared for him and, and loved the guy even in the short amount of time we got to be close. And I don't, I'll never get the chance to do that. So that's hard. Um, and then, I, you know, I think about what he left behind. He left behind a family who loved him friends who loved him and three girls who adored him and that is something I just can't wrap my head around to be honest with you the enduring memory I'll have of Jim is that he loved a project and what I mean by that was he never forgot where he came from and what it was like to be broke or to be the low man on the totem pole or the guy who was getting the fuzzy end of the lollipop from life. <clears throat> we would constantly argue when we were running fusion together. Because he would come to me and he'd say, hey, we should use this guy. And I wouldn't see anything in him. But Jim did. And nine times out of ten, we'd end up fighting about it because the guy would turn out to be unreliable. Or just the shits. Whatever. But Jim knew that that particular guy was just looking for an opportunity. And he remembered when he was looking for an opportunity, and he was bound and determined to make sure they got one. Going back to what Scott said, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I was having problems with a headlight on a truck I just bought. And even though he worked all day, and even though he had a house full of kids, this guy was willing to come out to the garage 
pop that grill off my truck and take it all apart and it was a huge pain in the ass but he did it just because so my story with Jim is a bit different from everybody else's because me and Jim didn't form a friendship or relationship through wrestling Actually, we formed a friendship and a relationship personally. Um, by, at this point, we had been the Ross family for some time. Me and Jim just sat around and we hung out together, but it was never really a thing where, you know, we considered each other really, really close friends. Um, one night, um, he called me and was like, hey man, I'm bored and I have nothing to do. You want to take a ride? And so that was the beginning of our friendship, like our, our really close friendship because that became like the tr tradition between me and him. You know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night, Jim would call me and he's like, hey man, I'm having these issues, I'm having these problems, I'm going through these situations, you know, I need somebody to talk to. Or I would call him or I would go, hey man, I'm going through these problems, these situations or these problems and, you know, I need somebody to talk to. And we would, we would just drive around and, you know, do stupid shit, you know, you know, for hours, you know, uh, one of the best ribs we collectively thought, to, or the, one of the best ribs we've pulled on each other, you know, was thought of by Jim, and that was the whole, the, the bouillon cubes thing, where we put bouillon cubes in the shower. And he stole that, that, he stole that from Scrubs. Regard, it, but it was a fantastic rib, you know. Like you, I never they, knew there were bullion cubes oh, in the no, shower. That's because you always yeah. smell beefy. Yeah. You know, we, the, he would come up with, like, the craziest, just the stupidest ideas. Let's go over to Vic's house and like, with bars of soap and, and bright stuff on his car. Which you is know, fun and games until somebody puts something racist on Ten him. minutes before he has to go to work and, you know. He has, Vic has to drive to work with this prevalent of, like, racial and homosexual. All know, written uh, by All you. written by Jason Masters. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> else wrote, like, I wrote about Whatever. Rob. Shut I'm up. Pretty sure I wrote okay, about Okay, shut up. Either way. You know, like, but he came up with these, he came up with these elaborate ribs all the time, man. And, like, I remember this, this, this one time, it was me and him, and, like, he picked, like, I, I was in a situation where I ended up having to move out of my house and into another house. And, you know, in this other house that I moved to, there was prostitutes in the area. And Jim had never really seen, like, actual prostitutes, you know. And that turned into a thing where we would go out and not solicit, but just... Hooker watch. Hooker watch. That's one, that's one, that's one. Until the day he pulled on the curb and fucking Gollum walked up to me and asked me for fucking money. 
as if I was gonna money like do things with her. Like it was weird. That's not the right song. I just I'm long-winded because I have so many memories of Jim, and none of them are bad. One day, we, we drove around and just listened to the music from the Blue Oyster Bar for... This is actually the theme song to Hooker Watch. We, uh, we, just drove, we, we just drove around for hours. We developed a theory that the hookers were like the dead horses in Harry Potter. Which, that's this is probably a very specific reference for a very short amount of people, the nerdier groups. So there are horses in Harry Potter you can't see unless you've seen somebody die. Okay. You can't see a hooker on Greenfield Avenue until you see your first hooker, and then you see every hooker on Greenfield Avenue. But this, it's the similar theory to you don't notice a car until you buy that car, and then everybody's got a Prius all of a sudden, right? That's accurate, yeah. Uh-huh. So. Um, but yeah, like, we, we just drove around for hours and just listened to... The Blue Oyster Bar song, and we like at his children's, at his kids' school, and you know, it's like every day, like all day, we just did. We did stuff. We went like grocery shopping. We cooked out that day, and we just did. Me and Jim spent a lot of private time together that a lot of people don't know about, you know, and. Miss my brother. I think the one thing that that still kind of comes from this, you know, and Vic, you referenced it about you know when you for fusion looking for the, you know, the guy trying to get an opportunity and in everything, every walk of life, every discussion, he always fought for the underdog. He always looked out for the underdog and. I think that's the one thing, aside from all the wrestling and all the friendship and, and family, is that that's, he was the champion for the uh, under underprivileged or or underutilized. Underappreciated. Underappreciated, that's the word I'm looking for. He was their champion. I mean, this dude, like, this, is, this has nothing to do with wrestling, but I mean, this dude, every year, for like the last four years, would fight over the grill. Yeah, but you're a terrible griller, so... No, I don't know why you fight over the grill. Yeah, I, I don't know why you, you just the, didn't tap you out. You dirty out. little Seriously. motherfucker. Are you, uh, I mean... You slack Joe All right. Lip. All right. That would be like me like fighting Ryan Seacrest over who's cuter. Uh, you, you, had no business, you had no business touching that grill. Monica, any thoughts on... on your? I mean... You kind of listen to us tell stories for an hour and a half. Yeah, um, I mean, I've got a lot of good stories, a lot of good memories. Um, he recently helped me out in the jam that I had, which a lot of people don't know. But, um, he was a good dude. 
I think you summed it up perfectly. You was for the fun. And here's really what I'm going to get to. All right? If there's anybody out there that thinks killing yourself is a good option, suicide. it's Say not. Suicide. Say suicide. You can look at it and think that everybody would be better off without you and that everything would be easier if you weren't there. But there are people who are going to care. And there are people who are going to be guilty because they feel like they could have done more. So, if you think that that's a good option for you, there's a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline you can call. And it's 1-800-273-TALK. That's talk, 8255. You can talk to somebody anytime there. You don't want to talk to a stranger? Call a friend. I guarantee you have one. Somewhere. To end this, I want Jim Duffy to tell the story of the Nashville Wrestling Show. So in a little bit of irony, almost a year to the day that Jim died, we were in Nashville for the Packers-Titans game. And we left Friday night at 10 o'clock and drove all night. And we hit Nashville about 8 o'clock in the morning. And we fucked around all day. We went to the Johnny Cash Museum. We had food. Uh, we walked a mile and a half for the shittiest record shop I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's third man records. But we, uh, we went back to the hotel and we started looking through Facebook because we all love terrible wrestling because we do it because it's our style and we found a show Jim found a show where it was ten dollars for a ticket to the show but it was nine dollars if you brought three canned goods which for the record would be more than a dollar um, and Jim called and he talked to the guy running it. And as soon as he got off the phone, his face lit up. And he said, we found our show. And we went down there and we sat down and we were just kind of taking it all in because, man, if you think you've been to a bad show, man, I suggest you get in your shit box and drive to Tennessee and take in top rope promotions. And after about five minutes of what seemed like an hour-long promo, pre-show promo, 
Jim declared, I think I can get in on this. And he stood up and just kind of slowly worked his way into the picture and he waited for his opportunity. And when he got it, he started to suggest things. Um, in the promo, there were two sides uh, and they were to sell these gift bags. It was basically a promotion to raise some money. And the one guy was told that if he lost, he would have to eat a can of dog food. And the other guy who had a big bushy beard was told that if he lost, he was going to have to shave his beard. Which is a comical story from another time, for another time. And then Jim was like, well, what if he wore a dress? And then the guy was like, yeah, what if you had to wear a dress? And then when it was time for the other guy, Jim suggested something else equally ridiculous, like old school wrestling bullshit. Now, now let me ask one question. Yeah. Was he in the crowd at the time, or did he make his no, way? Jim, he literally, you have he to... stood up and just sort of slowly made his way closer to the ring, closer and closer to the ring. And then he just kind of leaned on it, like he was doing it to pop us. <laughs> and it worked. We laughed our asses off. There are and, pictures. And then, like, slowly but surely, he like he saw his spot, and he dove in there. And nobody thought to tell him, hey, why don't you go sit the fuck yeah, down? Yeah, nobody questioned it. <laughs> nobody questioned it. They, were, they just started taking his suggestions. Roll it. it was like an improv show. Uh, it, Just say yes to everything. It really was, and it was. Unless it's the, unless the suggestion is to shave your beard. Right, because that guy was not going to shave his beard, and he made that abundantly clear. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he did it just to get a laugh out of us, and it worked. We laughed our asses off. Yeah, I um, I mean, I, I don't know any way to wrap it up better than that other than to say that the one thing that we have to realize as brothers is that we'll always have those memories. They're going to last forever until I get dementia, which could be next year at the rate I'm going. Um, and we have to remember amongst anybody who's listening, you have a group of family, friends, relatives. Never, ever, ever forget to tell them how much they mean to you. Because you may never have a chance to, to do it. Um, if you if you waste the opportunities that you have here. So, any Anything else? Is that... We appreciate, I know we, we went long, but for good reason. I mean, hell, we could go hours if we just wanted to tell Jim stories, and we'll get a chance to do that, hopefully under better circumstances as, as some of the, the fog clears up. But we love you, man. Um, for Monica, Jack Spade, Jason Masters, Vic Ross, I'm Hotshot Scott Williams. Thank you. Good night. The two-man boy band was in the Ross family? Because Lane said whoa, name. Whoa, one of them was. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. The Ross Family Matters Podcast. With Jim. <laughs> Hot uh, fuck you, I almost made it. Almost. Almost. Ross. 
Jack Spade. Crop the Prodigy. Hey, I post this big long thing about why I got into wrestling and what my thing was, and I'm sick of this online jacking. Here's my address. I put my address right in the, the thing. I said, if you guys want to have an issue, here's where I live. And I showed up to kick your ass. <laughs> you showed up, but it wasn't to kick my ass. It was to say, hey, like, I was, you know, what you said was cool, like, you want to just hang out and talk for a bit, whatever. So we just talked, started talking that way. I remember that. And hanging out that way. I was, uh, to, to get all software moment, I was inspired by your post. Yeah. And I remember that. I, I, I wanted to meet you. So we're still here. So now we're kind of on the same level as uh, Give Me a Break with Del Carter. Come on, that went a long time. It's hard to get canceled from a podcast, bro. <laughs> if there's anybody that can do it, it's up. We'd figure it out. Because, there, and I don't remember what the spot was, but I said, don't do this spot. Right. And then you did it. So I was I'm like, known for that. Don't think about elephants, and then I think about elephants. Motherfucker. <laughs> Right. He does all his talking. <laughs> what is happening right now? For the audience, what type of a hat it is? Well, first of all, I can tell you that it is very cold out here today. Uh, I wore my fur coat, and I would typically wear my my fedora with my fur coat because I like to be classy. Do you have ladies of the evening out on the track? <laughs> And this shit now. <laughs> okay, fuck it. So the steak buffet, why wouldn't oh, you just Jesus get Christ. steak, okay? There's steak and then they have like sides everywhere right. you go. And it's like old country buffet, Dude, but happen. they have steaks, okay? But I'm just saying you pay like $7. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to go eat mashed potatoes. I'm going to eat broccoli and I'm going to eat beans. Fuck that. Maybe dude. I'll have Go steak. and get steak. Yeah. And then when you're done with that steak, go get another fucking steak. And then go get another steak, get another steak. And I have high blood pressure, and I'm willing to have high blood pressure. Why isn't there one in Milwaukee? 
Why the fuck did it take me so long to get to the steak buffet? What the fuck? Nobody told me about the steak buffet. All right. I guess there's no fuck rule for you this week. Not this week! <laughs> Not when it comes to steak. <laughs> I ate like seven steaks that day. It was amazing. That's what you should do. That's like 35 ounces of steak. I'm sitting watching my friends eating these sides and filling up on bullshit. Uh, can I'm I get some more broccoli some while you eat your steak?